0: Yeah, on. Two twins.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Herb Alpert, play us in, buddy. Play us in, Herb. Do what you do, Herb. Do what you do, baby.
1: Welcome back to Two Twins and an Album. I'm Nubs, joined as always by Tof. Tof, what is going on?
0: Well, can't complain. Um, it's uh, I'm excited about this one. This is a little something different, and uh, looking forward to it. And now for something completely
1: different. It's quite a quantum leap to go from. The Beastie Boys to Mike Oldfield, isn't it?
0: Yeah, we mentioned, uh, you know, on episode zero that our plan was to be eclectic. You know, Nirvana, Oasis, Toto, Phil Collins, Beasties, right into what you'd expect. The obvious next step. Yeah. The <laughs> obvious next step, which is Mike Oldfield. I, whenever
1: I lead an episode, I am always looking forward to what you think of of the album for that particular edition. But for this one, I am particularly interested because everything we've done to this point has been something that you and I have some shared familiarity with, right? I mean, we both lived through Nirvana and Our Lady Peace and, you know, we kind of know where each other stands in Phil Collins, Beastie Boys. We have some shared stories about that. Mike G, the Mike G story. Yeah. But this album is one that you and I have really never talked about. And we'll find out more in The Wondrous Stories, but I, I'm not even sure <laughs> that you knew of this album before, before I sort of said, hey, let's do this.
0: Well, spoiler alert, my Wondrous Story is going to be very unwondrous tonight.
1: Yeah, it, it will lack wonder. But a story nonetheless. But, you know, as we, as we navigate through this uh, pandemic... Don't you think that discovering new albums, or at least anything that you have never heard before, don't you think that's been a little bit part of the fun during this? I mean, I, I don't know about you, but my record collection has not shrunk during this whole ordeal. It is, it has grown.
0: Oh, you're you're, you're so right. I mean, it, you know, not that you and I aren't just working so hard in our corporate jobs. You know, not that not that we're not all in on that. But, you know, there is a little bit of extra time to um, revisit a band, get to know a band. Uh, and in this case, revisit something many would consider incredibly important and many perhaps never heard. And, and in some cases, perhaps never even heard of. And I think that's part of what's going to be interesting about this episode you know how many people we hear from that either came into this medium familiar with tonight's selection or perhaps not familiar at all and I think there will probably be a little bit of both
1: there's a concept I want to roll out early here and the word is mainstream and I think we we exist in a a very interesting musical time where there really isn't a mainstream. I think that the changes in technology and the changes in the music business have, have all but eliminated a mainstream. Certainly the, the huge decrease in the impact of commercial radio has virtually eliminated the mainstream. But for decades, there was certainly a music mainstream. And the beauty of tonight's album, and one of the many reasons why it's going to be fun to explore it is this is one of the oddest mainstream albums in the history of music. And to discount this album as something underground or something that's um, a hidden treasure or something like that would be ridiculous. I mean, tubular bells was an enormous hit and we'll go over a lot of the statistics to prove that. And some of the legacy aspects to prove that as we navigate here, but
0: I mean, all I can think about when I think about current music now is festival rock. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You like that? <laughs> I do. I do. The coined phrase by uh, everyone's favorite podcast co-host, Nubs. Um, no, you know, I, obviously, uh, you know, a project like the one we're going to talk about tonight probably doesn't happen in today's day and age, probably because people don't have the patience For anything, but particularly record that's composed of one song split into two. And and also one that demands a little bit of thought and a little bit of intrigue from the listener. You know, I mean, Tubular Bells is not going to just jump out at you. You know, it was something where almost more comparable to a classical piece, you know, where you had to kind of read into it a bit and dig into it a bit. But A very unlikely hit, to your point.
1: Are you telling me that a 49-minute, 18-second song does not deliver instant gratification? (laughs) Is that what you're saying? (laughs) Well, this album sold 17 million copies. It launched Virgin Records, but more than that, it launched the Virgin Empire. It was featured as part of the opening ceremonies for the 2012 Olympic Games in London. It's one song spread across two sides by a virtually unknown 19-year-old artist. So if that doesn't tickle your fancy, I don't know what will. But I'll tell you what's going to tickle our fancy right about now. Is we're going to take this thing around and around.
0: So if what is tickling your musical fancy? right now i'm currently being tickled by a release from a great band one that has you know spawned further great bands and a further great artist that artist is richard butler do you know what band richard butler started with psychedelic furs and love spit love that is indeed correct the psychedelic furs this week released their first record in 29 years and it's called made of rain and it is good boy is it cool that these guys got back together after that long to release uh, a, a really really great listen so made of rain just came out this week uh check that out and Huge fan, certainly, of Love Spit Love as well. And Richard Butler also put out an outstanding solo album, a little more on the mellow side, you know, going back probably 10 or 15 years ago. So Psychedelic Furs, way to go. A uh, great new release. The second is a little, little 80s hair metal, a little glam metal for you out of Sweden, a Swedish Swedish glam metal band. That being Europe, um, oh yes. In case you hadn't already guessed that, and the album is Out of This World. This was the follow-up to the Final Countdown, which obviously you know had a majority of the band's you know big hits on there. Obviously, the title track, "Carry Rock the Night." These are the band you know the songs that most people know them for. But Out of This World is a really good album, and you know, Superstitious is a great lead-off track. Um, you know, a lot of good stuff in here and, and, and they were a good band. And the third one, something completely different is the sounds of 66. And this is the very famous, uh, buddy, rich, Sammy Davis, jr. I guess a collaboration, but more of a performance than anything. This was recorded at like four in the morning in Las Vegas. It was basically an impromptu, you know, set at the Sands hotel, Um, where Buddy Rich and the band kind of set up and Sammy Davis Jr. joined them and they just kind of, it was almost like a jam. But uh, it is really cool if you're at all a fan of this era and of kind of the big band stuff and certainly Buddy Rich, how could you not be? And uh, The Sounds of 66, a very, very cool, very special recording. So those are the three. You know, by the way, there are some
1: recordings of you in Vegas at four in the morning circulating they're out there. And, and may I say they're uh, they're pretty interesting.
0: God, uh, let's hope not. What's <laughs> what's uh, round and round for you?
1: You know, I'm still on my ZZ top kick, still loving those vinyl box sets that I think we talked about. Maybe that was even on episode one. So I think so. Yeah. Yeah. This week I spent quite a bit of time with ZZ tops first album, which is very appropriately titled ZZ tops first album. <laughs> I love those guys. They're just so kind of matter of fact, you know, yeah. and uh, gosh, just such great riffs and they do so many cool things rhythmically, just kind of underrated in the end, even though they're, they're a very revered band. I've never seen ZZ top live. Hopefully one day I'll get a chance to, cause I'd like to check that one off the box. Uh, so continue with that little kick uh, shutter to think is a band. I really like one of my favorite albums uh, of theirs is the Pony Express record from 1994. But the one I've been listening to this week is the follow-up to that from 97, which is 50,000 BC. Excellent musicianship in that band. So if you've never heard them, check them out. And then lastly, I I found a copy, a pretty rare vinyl copy of Diamanda Galas with John Paul Jones. Oh my. um, Which is an album from 1994 called The Sporting Life. So it's John Paul Jones from Led Zeppelin, playing with Diamanda Galas, who's one of the most extraordinary vocalists ever. She's also a little scary. Oh, yeah, yeah, terrifying. Absolutely.
0: I mean, but, she, but... she scares the hell out of me. I can, I can hardly listen to her. Her and Nico, I just can't do it. Nico, really?
1: Nico, oh, like from no. The Velvet Underground?
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, gives me gives me chills in a bad way.
1: <laughs> yeah, she's she's definitely a little bit on the uh on the scary side but also a just incredible vocalist. Oh,
0: amazing. I mean, yeah, from pure pure vocalist uh approach is incredible.
1: And her combined with John Paul Jones who still in my opinion was kind of the true musician in Led Zeppelin even though they were all, you know, fantastic. It's a really great album it's it's kind of hard to find and it's got jpj's like trademark bass work and the bass is really high in the mix and it just combines in a fascinating way with her you know seemingly 10 octave vocal styling so the sporting life is the last thing that is round and round for me
0: i gotta say out of the the six selections quite the variety
1: a lot of variety Let's go to Tubular Bells. Um, we, uh, we touched on some things early, but this is an album that really is driven by a story. It's a true narrative with protagonists and interesting characters. And while the whole thing is, is really focused around one artist, Mike Oldfield, there are several other people that weave in and out of the story that have a tremendous impact on the development of this album, the release of this album, and more than anything, the legacy of this album. There have been entire films made about this album. There have been books written about this album. And with all of the narrative that is captivating, it's still a a portrait of music that is really unlike anything else that's ever hit the mainstream. And we'll continue to talk about that as we go. You know, the fact that this album was not some kind of fringe thing. This is one of the top 50 selling albums of all time in the UK. It sold millions of copies, and it really launched a true empire when you look at the Virgin Empire. So we'll get into all that right now as we look at those nerdy deets done dirt cheap. You want some dirty deets? Yeah! Michael Gordon Oldfield was born May 15th, 1953. Now, T, for you and I, what does that mean in terms of some people in our life?
0: Oh, he's a year younger to the exact date as our dad. That's right.
1: One year younger exactly than the dude who we call dad. Who birthed us. Who birthed, well, he didn't, he didn't birth assisted us. He, assisted hey, the birthing of us. He played a role, let's say that. <laughs> and that's just an interesting perspective to think, oh, this, this guy who released this incredible album that feels so long ago is actually virtually the same age as our dad and probably many other dads out there of our listeners. When Mike Oldfield began composing tubular Bells, he was 17 years old. 17. Now, I don't know what you and I were doing at 17, but it wasn't this.
0: We, we certainly weren't writing 48-minute opuses.
1: Well, your, your junior high and high school heartbreak stories are are now you know legendary on the podcast. So I'm sure you were writing something that was dealing with some sort of heartbreak.
0: Oh, I mean, to this day, I'm still writing songs about girls that dumped me. I mean, <laughs> give me a break. I'll never stop.
1: The, the inspiration behind Tubular Bells comes from a lot of different things. Mike Oldfield uh, had a relatively happy childhood until he hit kind of the ages of six to eight years old. And he started going through some some really life-changing things. He had a terrible experience with a mom who developed a, a mental illness that she never quite recovered from. He became very reclusive, very introverted, he had a, a a terrible experience with LSD when he was early in his teenage years. And by 19, he found himself in the manor studio recording Tubular Bells. And by all accounts, the composition of Tubular Bells is an enormous reflection of a pretty troubled, fairly traumatic life that he had had up to that point when you learn about artists what led into their work more often than not you're finding out that their lives weren't simple and there were complexities weaving in and out of them
0: yeah, and it's so funny you listen to an interview with Mike goldfield in present day and you would never ever guess the chaos and the mental anguish and the just overall complication of this artist, uh, you know, going back 50 years ago, you just would never guess it because you can tell he's kind of at a place in life now that's very comfortable and, you know, very positive and one that is very reflective constructively and, and, you know, looks back on all these things fondly. But the more you kind of dig into the story, the more you realize that that sure as hell wasn't what was going on at the time. You mentioned the LSD experience. You know, I found that to be one of the most underrated contributors toward where Mike Oldfield's head was at, at the time, you know, nowadays it's become kind of a joke because LSD and, acid and those things really aren't as big as in modern day as they were at that time. So bad trips and hallucinations and some of these things have almost become a piece of humor or sort of folklore and looking back at the 70s, you know, more of something that people poke fun at or play symbolism upon. But, you know, going through a quote unquote bad trip um, on LSD is no joke. And Mike Oldfield speaks to that, but it sounded like something that really damaged him for a period of time and interestingly enough, as was the case with many artists, not only at that time, but what we've seen continue for the decades thereafter, is this ability to expand their creativity sometimes in those instances, and who knows if the the bad acid trip experience that he had helped the development of tubular bells or really didn't, you know, change it either way. But one thing that's for certain is that those that were dealing with Mike Oldfield at that time have all stated that that had a tremendous impact on his, you know, sort of emotional imbalance and instability around that time.
1: Yeah, they're all excellent observations. Uh, modern day interviews with him. It's it's great to hear him reflect it's clear that he has worked on himself a lot and he's gotten himself to a place where he seems very comfortable. Even when Tubular Bells came out, he he didn't want anything to do with the album. They had to beg him to play it live a couple times, which he did very reluctantly. Um, but now it's cool because you can see him really embrace it. We mentioned earlier that he was part of the, the opening ceremony at the Olympics in 2012, playing a snippet of Tubular Bells and you can you could see what that meant to him to have that kind of global impact from really something that came out of a musician learning how to play he's completely self-taught and when he was going through these negative experiences growing up his sister Sally says that he would lock himself in the room and just play and like so many incredible musicians he didn't take lessons he taught himself and by 17 he was composing this masterpiece And by 19, he was recording it. Tubular Bells was released on May 25th, 1973. It is the premier release on a little label called Virgin. Or at least at the time, it was a little label. Uh, Basically a startup. It was definitely a startup. That's for sure. Uh, It's the premier release on Virgin Records. It's V2001. And Virgin Records was basically an independent record label started by a guy named Richard Branson who had to take a loan from his aunt to start Virgin Records and to purchase and start the Manor recording studio where Tubular Balls was recorded.
0: Like literally didn't have a pot to piss in, Richard Branson, at at this time.
1: Exactly. He was basically reselling records. He thought the music industry was something he could get into, So he decided to start a label. And in the process of recording artists, Mike Oldfield was doing a session playing bass at the Manor. This was around the time he was playing in Kevin Ayer's band. I mean, Mike Oldfield had some experience at this point at a very young age, but he stumbled upon a couple of the producers at the Manor and basically shoved a tape of tubular bells in Tom Newman and Simon Hayworth's face and said, listen to this. And and they did, and and they quickly got in touch with Richard Branson and said, hey, we've got something really special here. And Richard Branson, you know, didn't have a clue about what made this album unique or, I mean, he wasn't really a music guy, he was a business guy. But to Richard Branson's credit, he supported recording it, releasing it, it became the first Album on the Virgin Records label. And when it became successful, it launched Virgin. Richard Branson is now worth $4.1 billion. And his first success in his career is Tubular Bells. And so the idea of this very introverted, kind of damaged artist coming together with this brash, confident, visionary businessman, and somehow, some way, these two very unique forces joining up to create an album that would last forever and a brand that would become one of the most recognizable brands in the world is just one of many aspects that makes this album an absolutely extraordinary story.
0: Yeah, this is, I mean, I'm trying to think of the like U.S. equivalent here. It's almost like if Bill Gates discovered king crimson yeah like before microsoft was like even a like thing
1: yeah that's that's pretty good comparison for (laughs) sure just
0: a very very unlikely pairing certainly if you look back and see what richard branson's become and seeing you know what mike oldfield was at the time and certainly what his legacy has been it's it's a very bizarre unlikely situation but certainly one that made the careers of these two men one who proceeded to get into the record business and the airline business and one that put out one of the most notable albums globally in in the last century and it sounds like one of the hurdles that they had was getting Richard Branson on board just from the standpoint of Understanding the music because it sounds like he was kind of into Skiffle and, you know, some of those other things that were happening in the UK at that time. A lot of the people look back now and sort of laugh that his musical tastes weren't exactly modern at the time. And so it sounded like one of the things that they probably were the most worried about is making sure that, you know, this guy who ultimately had to make the decision releasing and publishing this first record from this unknown guy, you know, getting him on board with that. That sounded like one of the many elements of the story, uh, a bit of a chore early on for these guys.
1: You're absolutely right. Richard Branson is not the, the music guy in the whole story, but he is the business brain. And that was incredibly important by all accounts, the two guys that really made the whole thing happen from a creative standpoint are the producers, Simon Hayworth, and, and especially Tom Newman. Tom Newman is one of the great interviewees you could ever see if you have any time going YouTube and, <laughs> yeah. and watch him. He's just such, a, such an entertaining guy, and he's really dialed in on the whole Tubular Bells experience. A really funny and entertaining guy to, to listen to speak about this album. The album was a slow mover. It took really two months even to chart. It didn't chart until July of 73. It then went on to spend 286 weeks on the UK charts. 286 weeks. That's how long this album was on the charts. It's Big Break was its inclusion well it, it had a few different big breaks one of which uh it got played by John Peel in in full on the John Peel show which mm. never happened before and John Peel was you know this powerful force in the UK music scene BBC, the BBC Radio yeah. BBC Radio exactly yeah and John Peel decided to play the whole thing top to bottom on his show and that just gave an endorsement that nobody else ever received on the Peel show and the other aspect was its inclusion in The Exorcist, the William Friedkin movie from 1973, which again came out in December of 73. So that came out several months after the album debuted, but its inclusion on The Exorcist is really what took the album over the top and we'll talk quite a bit about that as we go,
0: particularly in the US. You know, that was really the the Tubular Bells really big break in the US was on The Exorcist.
1: The credits are are pretty easy to to go through because Mike Goldfield virtually played everything on this grand piano, glockenspiel, Farfisa organ, which is an important instrument in this, all the guitars. Yes, he played the tubular bells, of course.
0: And I believe he, you know, one of his first asks once he was approved to go into the studio and record the project, I believe he asked for 20 different instruments, which is kind of interesting. That's not a typical, uh, usually you get a band who kind of comes in with instruments in hand and they've rehearsed and all those things. And Mike Goldfield apparently right from the get-go, basically said, all right, it's great that uh, we're going to go forward with this project. Let me give you my uh, laundry list of <laughs> instrumentation needed <laughs> for this. And I think it was 20 that he asked for.
1: It was, and he didn't even get... Time booked at the manor. He recorded tubular bells between sessions. So when when the producers weren't working with other artists on development projects, if there was time, he'd go in and do some recording. And so yeah, he was he had to request instruments and he was sort of recording the thing piecemeal (laughs) when he had time to. I mean, he was unknown. He was a complete unknown. And it just adds to the narrative behind this, this really uh, unique album. Yep. All right, let's get into Wonder Stories. I don't know how wondrous your story is going to be, but uh, let's dig it anyway. Wonder Stories. <laughs> so, how many days ago did you learn about Mike Oldfield? Well, I knew
0: about Mike Oldfield... And I knew Tubular Bells was a thing. I knew the album cover because that's pretty iconic. You know, I actually had it in my, still have it, in my digital collection. But in all honesty, I, I had never listened to it all the way through. So my wonder story kind of begins uh, two weeks ago <laughs> when uh, my podcast co-host and twin brother Nubbs uh, told me that you know this was going to be an episode, and that's about as wondrous as my story gets. Um, yours will be a lot interesting, so why don't I turn it over to you?
1: This nubs guy sounds fascinating.
0: Oh, he's he's a he's a bit of a strange duck, but uh, you know, other than that, he's the best.
1: Well, strange duck is true. Uh, as a we we've talked about it before on on episodes here, where I got into Prague. A little early, maybe a little earlier than most, maybe like twelve <laughs> years old. And when you get into prog rock, you you can't avoid certain masterpiece works that are considered part of that genre. You know, you, you can't get into prog rock and and not at some point hear about in the court of the Crimson King, or you can't not hear about close to the edge. Or, you know, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway or these, these just titles that pop up and Two Brother Bells is in that category. So in the discovery, it just didn't take long to come across this album. And I remember when I first put it on, I was like, oh yeah, like I know that, but didn't quite totally piece together where it came from. And so this just fit in perfectly with that whole discovery throughout my teenage years and well into college. I would say this is one album that I just consistently have listened to for 30 plus years at this point.
0: The only thing I'll chip in with, I almost feel like at this point in the episode that people maybe should pause us and go listen to the piece and maybe, maybe also watch the uh, BBC performance of the piece. And oh, this yeah. is the one where Mike Goldfield is in the tank top looking, looking pretty studly. If I may say so myself, he looks pretty good. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> he, he doesn't look like a guy you're going through mental anguish. He looks kind of like a rock star, but it's a tremendous performance and that way you get both kind of the, the studio run through it and the live piece, you know, run through it on that performance, which is readily available. I think um, if you've yet to hear it, and you've gotten to this point of this episode, as wonderful as we are, and I want you to stick with us, I would almost pause us, take a lap through Tubular Bells, and then come back to us.
1: So why don't we do that right now? So everybody hit pause, and then go listen to Tubular Bells. Pause.
0: And we're back. And <laughs> we're See,
1: let's drop that needle. There's only one song to get through. This should be a, you would think this would be a really fast track by track because there's, oh yeah, one song. But uh let's do this thing. Throw that needle on the record. Throw that needle on the record. Mike Oldfield was in Kevin Ayers The Whole World before he decided to kind of strike on in his own and see what happened. Kevin Ayers is a pretty famous musician. He was in Soft Machine and a few other bands. And for a period of time they lived together. And apparently it was kind of a disaster, the two of them, you know, sharing a place together. And (laughs) they were they they weren't good roomies. They were not good. No, they were not good roomies. And when when Oldfield moved out as part of the separation of things. He got two things. One was a tape recorder, which allowed Mike Goldfield to go record demos. And the other is the Farfisa organ. And the Farfisa organ is an incredibly important part of tubular bells because it's what you hear just a few seconds into the opening when you drop the needle on tubular bells part one. And when you drop the needle on tubular bells part one, you hear quite a familiar theme. So there it is, the infamous and famous opening of Tubular Bells. That's the Grand Piano, the Glockenspiel, and the Farfisa organ. Now that is the theme that was used in The Exorcist. And The Exorcist is is obviously one of the most famous horror movies of all time. Whether The Exorcist lended to Tubular Bells' success or Tubular Bells lended to The Exorcist's Success. It's very obvious that the two were kind of a match made to heaven. And you got to think that that theme right there was played on a lot of the promotional things for the exorcist. And when I think movie promotion, I, I think about the guy with the deep voice kind of talking over the, the song and sure, you got it. Sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, whoever that guy is, he probably just sits in his room all day, just waiting for, you know, movie commercials to come through and then makes a billion dollars. Exactly. Yeah. So it's it probably like something, I mean, just, just give it give, give a little bit of a theme there. Just, you know, let's just see, let's just see what we can do here, but. Oh, you're going to give it a go. Well, right. yeah. You know, you, you think about, think about that, that guy who does this for a living. I mean, sure. It's something like, uh, there's a hell within all of us. You never know when it might come out and when it does, it can transform anybody. The Exorcist from William Friedkin.
0: Did you make that? Wait, you didn't make that up, did? Were you reading that? No, no, I made that up. That was was, you made that up. Yeah. Wow. That was uh, that was dark.
1: I mean, don't you think that you you can say anything in the deep voice over that song and have it be you know powerful?
0: I think I think you're a dark guy. Let me let me
1: try another one here. Here we go. Let's try again. Give me the theme. Coming to a theater near you, the darkness comes out, even in a little girl. The Exorcist, from William Friedkin. Wow. I mean, give it a whirl. What do you think? You think you could do, be the movie voiceover guy? Um. Yeah, I mean, I... Th- <laughs> I mean, you saw The Exorcist, right? I mean, it's, it's worth where, a
0: try. Yeah, it's I where a little little girl gets possessed, and you know they don't know what to do, and but I, I mean, I like your I like your idea that you know uh, that really anything can sound sure. You know, I mean, I, I don't know. let's. Mary had a little lamb. Its fleece was white as snow and everywhere that Mary went that lamb was sure to go
1: nice yeah Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that was good that was good let's test one more let's see let's see if that if your theory really works let's take a look here give me give me the theme I love fruity pebbles they are so fruity and so full of pebbles oh how I love
0: fruity pebbles I mean fruity pebbles are delicious
1: what do you think was that moving
0: I'm almost thinking we should change up our theme song (laughs) I mean, we're doing all the Herb Albert thing. How about just a little, I mean. Two twins and an album. (laughs) I don't know. I love it. Maybe it's too scary.
1: You think so? Well, that theme uh, really became more than just a part of an album in 1973, and it became more than just a theme song to a really famous movie. But let's not forget, it's the opening to this epic track. And so right around two minutes and 41 seconds, uh, Oldfield does a pretty interesting thing. Remember, a lot of this is, is sort of these little motifs that were paired together. The transitions between sections is one of the most uh, interesting things to navigate as you listen to part
0: one. One other thing quickly on the on the intro piece there is he won a Grammy for this and that probably doesn't happen if it isn't, you know, due to the inclusion in the movie and isn't due to this intro section, which, which certainly is probably the most recognized and the most uh, iconic, but it's, it's pretty incredible what this work that probably was already destined to be pretty damn important, you know, what the inclusion in that film ended up doing for it.
1: And you know why musicians are just, they're, they're just the luckiest people on earth. He just sat down at the Farfisa organ and started playing that. It's just what came out of him. You know, th- that is not part yeah. of, the, of the song that he spent a lot of time on. He, he says he literally sat down and that's what came out of the guy's hands.
0: Well, I know that. I mean, when I sit down, um, that's the kind of stuff I play. Which, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. Essentially a warm up. So whatever. I'm lucky
1: to find middle C. If I sit down at the piano. And that's what comes out of Mike Goldfield. So at 241, he does this cool thing where um, the main theme is coming in, and then you can hear some offbeats on piano, and he says it represents a human heartbeat. And so if you could play a little clip of 241, you can kind of hear the thoughtfulness that he put into some of these parts. That's that. Dun, 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 bum, 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 mean, like the human heartbeat.
0: Yeah. And it's three, four working over, Not to get too technical here, but the, the intro piece is a bar of seven followed by a bar of eight, which actually the Exorcist producers really liked that off tempo, you know, kind of very unique time signature thing. It kind of almost leads to the intrigue and and almost kind of uh, creepiness in that it's in this odd time signature. So then he's that bass part that, you know, we just played is actually playing in three, four over that. So some pretty complex timing things going on here very early in the, in the piece.
1: Oldfield's main instrument really is guitar. I mean, he shows obviously his prowess throughout this whole album, but at six minutes and three seconds, you kind of start to hear some of the really virtuoso guitar work his sister sally says that you know he would just sit in his room and play and within weeks he was just playing these incredible solos and things that people shouldn't be playing when they're just weeks into being able to play so the guitar kind of slowly makes its way into part one and eventually becomes you know a really important part of it but right around six minutes you can start to hear some guitar
0: it's really cool i think on the bbc performance this is the point where he, because he starts off on bass. Yeah, he's a pretty damn good bass player too. Yeah, he is. But, uh, but yeah, I think this is kind of the moment where you see him, you know, switch over to the guitar, which is a cool moment. So
1: you've got significant tempo changes and parts winding from one part to another. At 724, there's this very low end kind of melody thing that comes in. And this almost gets back to that exorcist feel. In fact, I wonder if Bill Fried could ever considered using this bit, but at 724, you kind of get something completely different.
0: certainly sounds like something that uh, could have or should have been used in the exorcist. Right? I mean, almost just
1: as much as the opening theme. And then that leads into this kind of more beautiful floating section. At 1350, he introduces something completely from out of nowhere. And that is a honky tonk piano bit. And he actually brought up some of the kitchen staff from the Manor, which is the studio that Richard Branson bought and that they were recording in, to come and sing some of these background vocals. So one of the few guest musicians is the, the kitchen staff from the studio to come in and sing over this honky-tonk piano that's at 1350.
0: Yeah, one of the things that's, um, you know, as you kind of dig into this and get to know the piece as a whole, and obviously we're still working through side one here, but there are some certainly varying but very defined genres here. You know, you've got distorted guitar, you've got this honky-tonk section, you've got kind of these beautiful sweeping sections. You know, obviously the intro is one that's a bit more psychedelic and keyboard-based. You know, so so it it really just does take you through not only a lot of instrumentation, which obviously we'll get to, but a lot of genres represented throughout this entire piece. And this, this section we're about to play is, um, you know, certainly indicative of one.
1: It's a great call. You know, right around 13 minutes is where you start to just get into all sorts of different genres. So let's hear that honky-tonk piano. And then here's the transition into what Oldfield calls thrash rock. Check this out. I heard that once described as like the school band because it's kind of a dumb rock riff. You know, it sounds like something that a 12 year old might come up with. What do you think of all these twists and turns?
0: Oh, I mean, it's, you know, the first time you, I mean, you get, you get through, I mean, we're halfway through side one and, you know, think about the things that you've already kind of experienced. But, uh, but yeah, I, the thing that always kind of gets me about this first half of, of side a is, is really the bass playing you know, and, uh, some pretty difficult, important and unique, uh, bass performances. And, you know, one of the things, uh, for all you, all you kids at home, um, he played all this stuff live, no pro tools, no punching in and out, you know, there's a seven minute section in there that's utilizing all four strings and a lot of sliding and a lot of, um, expansion of you know placement on different frets. i mean stuff that's not easy he had to sit there in the studio and bang it out live the old-fashioned way and uh something that honestly probably even most great musicians these days probably don't have the rehearsal discipline or capacity to do but uh for mike oldfield and obviously his you know tremendous natural talent those kinds of things hell for him probably wasn't even that difficult
1: yeah kids he was recording on tape. And there's, there's no looping at this time. You're right. He had to play everything. And it just speaks to the musicianship. So 1655 is where you really start to hit that pinnacle. So you think, you know, with all these different bits and sections and motifs and, you know, how do you find a way to make all this culminate into something that really hits a high point? And boy, I don't know how and where and why he wrote this riff. But this riff is just legendary, you know, and it sets up not, not just the pinnacle of the album, but just one of the more unique and fascinating conclusions and high points of, of any piece of music I've ever heard. Certainly one that was mainstream, like Tubular Bells was. So let's hear that build at 1655 and great call on the bass work too. you. You can really hear it here.
0: thing that is really interesting that you kind of start to certainly realize by this time is no drums. I mean a lot of musicality going on a lot of odd time signatures a lot of complex rhythms without somebody you know which was mainstay at the time was to have a drummer back there beating and banging even in prague even in prague it was it was key to have the drummer, you know, carry a lot of that off-time sort of behavior and a lot of that off-time composition. And to this stage in the song, you know, it's behaving almost more like a symphony in that you don't have this rhythm section and backbeat from drums, you know, helping it along.
1: It's a great observation. No drum kit. You're, you're, You're virtually 17 minutes into this song, no drum kit, not one human voice at this point, aside from those kind of humming vocals from the the kitchen staff from the studio. But that's it. Until you hit the repetitiveness of this riff and you get into kind of the thing that makes tubular bells really special, which is this idea of the master of ceremonies. <laughs> rolling out the instruments and we'll get to that but let's dig kind of the full extent of the riff at one point right at about seven go to 1731 this is where that riff that's kind of being teased out during that transition really hits its full extent and sets up this incredibly grand outro of this particular work So now the idea is how do you get How do you get some voices in there? Mike Oldfield, not a singer, N- never was a singer and never was a singer after Tubular Bells. And the voice that comes in and makes this whole piece just something so special and bizarre and <laughs> cool and everything in between is Vivian Stanhall. Vivian Stanhall was in a band called the Bonzo Dog Boodle Band. And he was also kind of a, a BBC personality,
0: just a, just a mild character. If you,
1: want. <laughs> yeah. if you ever really want to be entertained, watch some clips, go to YouTube. And the guy was just a lunatic. He was nuts. <laughs> he was a complete maniac. <laughs> completely nuts. And by all accounts, uh, enjoyed himself some brandy pretty much round the clock and, Mike Oldfield was really bashful about even approaching Vivian Stanall to be part of this. Apparently he was there recording and being the person he is, was just barging into the studio and talking to people. And Tom Newman had to tell Mike Goldfield, well, go ask him, ask him if he'll do it, you know, because Oldfield had this vision of this master ceremonies who was going to roll out introducing the instruments. And so he, he timidly asked him and Vivian probably never hesitating to hear the sound of his own voice took him up on it. And again, I don't know where this came from. I'm sure it provided a great soundtrack to many, a, a, a party of people sitting around in the seventies doing whatever people in the seventies did in terms mm-hmm. of the various chemicals one might've been ingesting. Cause you know, that had to be part of this album, right? I mean, I don't, I think this was, I think this was an album that was popular amongst, uh, intakers.
0: Oh, there, there may have been, a. You know, um, substance or two being consumed during tubular (laughs) bells listening parties. I would imagine.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so Vivian Stendl takes over here and introduces individual instruments as they play this melody, and it culminates into this huge finish. So let's do a couple samplings of of the rolling out of those instruments. So in 2017, we we get the intro of the. Melody, and we, we start with the grand piano. Grand piano. And there's the famous melody that comes in, and you get Reed and Pipe Organ, Glockenspiel, bass guitar. 2148 is one I've heard. Let's run 2148 real quick. You'll like this one. I kind of want to hear you do one of these, by the way, just, just so you know. So be ready, <laughs> but let's hear the one at 2148. You could do this one. Double speed. <laughs> <laughs> right. Give Right. give give me a little bit of Vivian's down there. What, uh, give me in your voice. Oh man. Doubles. Double yeah. wait. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right, let's give it a go here. Double speed guitar. <laughs> like, that was terrible. Yeah,
1: that was good.
0: That was yeah. good. Mm-hmm.
1: That was good. I, want, I, I always wonder if he kind of did a little freelancing here. By all accounts, he was like impossible to work with.
0: Yeah, they, they had said that getting him on time You know, giving him his cues was like a nightmare. You know, (laughs) because it seems like maybe one of those guys that just getting him on task for anything was uh, was probably difficult. But the more it went on, as they actually sort of got him on cue, you know, Oldfield starts to you can tell that he kind of realizes this is this is we're having to break a few eggs here, but the but the omelet is perfect. You know, he he really started to kind of. Feel that this was the exact voice and the exact lead ins that he was looking for once they were able to get him on time.
1: Exactly, exactly. And you're building towards that big finish, which you can imagine what the final instrument is, but 2257 is one that's kind of beloved. Spanish guitar and introducing acoustic guitar. <laughs> I mean, isn't it great?
0: Oh, yeah. oh yeah. Spanish wow. guitar and introducing acoustic guitar. Like the acoustic guitar is this, uh, you know, obscure <laughs> instrument, you know, the <laughs> demands introduction. It's great.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And then the whole thing just comes to a complete pinnacle with, of course, the, the, the alas striking of the tubular bells. Let's hear it first, then I'll tell you what they used to get that sound. just this eruption of emotion you spend all this this time getting to that place and then all of a sudden you finally hear these tubular bells and I I will tell you tubular bells don't normally sound like that Uh, we grew up in the school band and if you were lucky enough on one song you might get a chance to play the tubular bells remember it's the big rack of bells with different notes on them and if you remember T it came with like uh it came with its own sort of hammer if you will it's like a mallet a mallet yeah exactly you and it was kind of soft exactly yeah and, and th- luckily for us in seventh and eighth grade there was the softer mallet because our band teacher didn't necessarily want us playing that at fortissimo but oldfield <laughs> kept saying these the tubular bells have to pop i mean they have to be really loud and so it was tom newman who said well you know we can't mix them up anymore. You know, it won't sound good in the mix. And so finally they they figured how can we get these things to sound as loud as Mike wants them. So Tom Newman goes and he gets a a claw hammer, which that's like a real hammer,
0: like an actual hammer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
1: Like, (laughs) you know, the hammer with the thing on the other end that you take the nail out with and he handed it to Oldfield and said, just hit it. (laughs) And Oldfield just hammered away. And that's how you get that really loud sound. So that's actual call hammer metal on metal, if you will. Part one ends with, I I think it was the most underrated parts of it, which is just this gorgeous acoustic guitar outro that plays it to its final notes. Let's just hear maybe the last eight to 10 seconds of (laughs) it, that ends part one. So part one is, is clearly the more famous of the two. We'll we'll spend a lot more time on part one than we will on part two, but what are your overall thoughts on Tubular Bells part one and side one of this album?
0: Well, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's a real journey and one that um, has a lot of imagination, you know, certainly has a bit of humor. You know, I think the introduction of the instruments and, and the way that that was done and Probably happy accident to get the voice that they got, but certainly, you can tell from Oldfield's recollections that it's exactly what he was looking for. Being in a band is great, and you know, collaboration and and all those things are certainly a big part of pretty much every episode we've done thus far on uh, on the old podcast here. But you know, sometimes a single artist and a single mind and a single vision can be just as fascinating, you know, because. Oldfield just had so many of these things in his head, and half the fun is learning about how he was able to communicate that to the other collaborators, to the producers, which is part of what's fun about watching him perform it with others. Because while he's not a showboat rock star type, you can tell it was his. You can tell it came from his mind, from his state of emotions at the time, and clearly a, a piece that probably took him a while to think through and to execute. And then therefore, you know, once all that composition stuff is done to actually have it represented properly on track. So it's a great, I mean you get halfway through this and it's almost like, Oh my God, there's more like, it's almost a treat because you already kind of feel like you've been, you know, taken on quite a ride with a lot of different sounds. And look, there are a lot of artists that are really, really talented, but maybe can't compose and can't be as creative and can't be as imaginative and there are some that are creative and compose well and have great musical imagination but can't play worth a lick Mike goldfield was one of those rare talents that could really bring both to the table and side one of tubular bells represents that combination and that approach as well as anything
1: So Oldfield gets side one finished. He is able to get that to Richard Branson, who basically then goes out and starts shopping it and selling it. I mean, obviously they knew it was going to be released on version, but they wanted to try and drum up some interest in it. So Branson went to work on that as Oldfield went back into the studio to record part two of Tubular Bells. Part two uh, has a couple highlights. It's certainly not as revered as part one, and most people that listen to the album really focus on part one. It is sort of the legendary side, but there's a couple things about part two that are really interesting. It does start with, again, a really beautiful, soft melody, so it starts off pretty understated and does have this pretty epic build. So let's just hear a minute or so of, of the opening bit. So some cool interlocking harmonics and, you know, some very musical ideas. And then there's this kind of long build that is building towards really something musically even larger than what happens in part one. But at 843, you start to again get that guitar introduction. You can see that Oldfield wants to rock out a little bit on this side.
0: I must say uh, somewhat delightfully British from the beginning. Yeah. Upside too. Yeah, it's a great call.
1: So, all sorts of things going on there. You can hear some of that high pitched guitar work in the background and some bagpipes and all sorts of stuff. Some timpani going on. So, already a little bit more percussive by 1140 we get two things introduced one is a drum set so yay rock band lovers you get to get a little drum set here and (laughs) the band goes into kind of a progressive rock and roll type of jam and we also have the entrance of some vocals or at least what can (laughs) be considered somewhat vocals and what has become known as the caveman section of part two Remember, this album sold 17 million copies and those are the vocals that are on it. They gave side one to Richard Branson and apparently Richard Branson's first response was it doesn't have any vocals on it. (laughs) And Oldfield being sort of in a bad place, right, mentally, we covered that early, he decided to get completely tanked one night in the manor and go into the studio and tell Tom Newman to come with him and proceeded to grab a microphone and just scream mercilessly into the microphone for about 20 minutes. <laughs> and apparently he couldn't speak for two weeks after he did this. You can kind of hear why. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and he was angry because he felt like he had to put vocals on it, and so his attitude was, you want vocals, here's your vocals. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean,
0: that's not surprising. I mean, it doesn't sound like he's in a great mood. (laughs) He doesn't sound chipper? No, not particularly.
1: So you kind of have to deal with the caveman vocals a little bit, but what comes at about 1250 is just this kind of all-out prog rock jam it's something that would make yes fans please let's take a listen to that
0: now we're jamming baby
1: now we're jamming so you got the drum set going You've got the the vocals (laughs) over the top of it. You get a very pissed off Mike Oldfield screaming. Well, that's him the entire time. It
0: is. Yeah, it is.
1: So that goes into a long jam. There's kind of a Pink Floyd spaced out thing a few minutes later. And then what really comes out of nowhere is the, the, the single that was taken for Tubular Bells, which is a piece called Sailor's Hornpipe. This is a traditional hornpipe melody. And this concludes part two it's at 2134 and you have this loud rocking guitar bit and a space bit and then literally out of nowhere just comes this traditional hornpipe melody and this became really the single from tubular bells so sailor's hornpipe concludes You know, put a cherry on top of the uh, cupcake of of complete ex- eccentricism. You have the tubular bells ending with this sort of jig. And that's what brings the whole thing to a conclusion. It literally ends at, on the last note of Sailor's Hornpipe. And thus ends tubular bells.
0: You know, part of what was kind of delightfully British about this and part of why I think it was so well received is it it certainly wasn't a pretentious piece. You know, I mean, you're gonna end a forty-eight minute epic with that, you know, to your point, basically a jig. I think it just kind of shows that none of this was being taken too seriously. None of this was going into the studio with the intention of creating a classic. I mean, <laughs> a timeless opus. I, I don't think that was ever in and, and clear and I think that's what side two demonstrates more than anything, is that this was about a, a creative expression piece more so than it was going out there with the intention of selling 17 million units. And that's that's what I like about Side 2 is it really kind of strips it down from from the standpoint of something that could have been overly complicated and overly pretentious. And it kind of softens a little bit of it and actually brings a bit of a sense of humor to it, which I think is certainly appreciated and and kind of appropriate as you kind of head down the stretch and sort of closing this out.
1: One of the many terrific observations you've made about the work is just, it's Britishness. It's a significant part of this whole story is, is that, that British, you know, very English humor that's in it. But one of the things you also have to keep in mind about this work is youth, just the blissfulness of being young. Yeah. And, being young and not really knowing what should be popular, what shouldn't be popular, what is gonna sell, what isn't isn't gonna sell. I mean, Mike Oldfield didn't have a clue about that. He was 19 years old. This is a great example of when a record label, and this doesn't happen anymore, but but back during this era, record labels let artists be artists. Mm-hmm. And what became a trademark of Virgin Records was they they let bands be themselves. And whether that be the, the prog bands that dominated Virgin early or when they got into the punk movement as a label or, and, and certainly into the post-punk movement. I mean, Virgin was an extremely important record label for post-punk artists. At every step of the way, there was not a lot of, of label interference with the creative process. And boy, do I wish we could go back to those days. But a lot of this was just the youthful freshness of an artist who didn't seem to really care about any of those things he just had ideas in his head and knew how to get them out and got them out
0: yeah almost comparable to united artists you know in in the film world and yeah that, that's a uh, good
1: comparison yeah
0: in that company in that organization and kind of what they stood for it was really about taking risks you know letting artists you know kind of execute the vision i mean just imagine if this piece was, I mean, even a couple decades later, you know, if this was brought into a, you know, certain kind of label conglomerate, you know, the way it would be the, the sort of skeptical viewpoint that some, uh, you know, at the sort of top levels of those organizations or those A&R types who are, you know, trying to look for what's going to sell, you know, it was very fortunate that this was in a place at a time and with the right people who were certainly willing to take a risk. Because make no mistake, this was a big risk for a lot of people. This was extremely unique. And they had no idea. I mean, it's easy to look back at now. But at the time, they had no clue that something like this was going to sell the way it did and be as successful as it was. And and the last person who expected that was Mike Goldfield himself.
1: And that was reflected in kind of the aftermath. So Tubular Bells became incredibly popular And Oldfield had an extremely hard time with the success. He didn't want to do any press. He did not want to tour. Branson and company forced him to play the piece live twice. Once, as you mentioned, for the BBC, the other for a live performance at Queen Elizabeth Hall with what became a who's who of prog rock musicians at the time as well as Mick Taylor from the Rolling Stones on guitar. And they played it once. And the show was kind of a disaster from the start. The day of the show, Oldfield had a nervous breakdown. He was with Branson driving to Queen Elizabeth Hall and said, I can't do this. I'm not going to do this. Richard Branson, sensing the importance of the moment, offered to give Oldfield his Bentley that was just given to him as a wedding gift. (laughs) if he would go forward with the show, somehow Oldfield got through his, his mental issues and was able to do the show. David Bedford came in on piano out of time. Mick Taylor's guitar was out of tune the entire show. There's bootleg copies of it. Vivian Stanhall, who was probably hammered off Brandy, was a complete disaster. <laughs> he introduced the instrument to the wrong order and didn't know when to come in. And at the end of it, the crowd gave a 15-minute standing ovation. Yeah, right. It's revered as one of the great live performances of all time. And Mike Oldfield will hardly talk about it because he thought it was such a train wreck. It just goes to show you that I guess a great work is a great work, even if you butcher it up a little bit. So with that, let's talk about Does Tubular Bells Matter?, Tell us about it. Does it matter?
0: Oh, God, yes. I mean, this is, you know, you know, this defines, I think, mattering in, in terms of what we're, you know, trying to kind of assess here on the old podcast here. You know, what is an important work? I mean, this is a very important work. Now, it may not be for everybody. It may not be something that you listen to every week or every month or hell, maybe even every year. But I, I don't think you can argue with the, uh, importance of this and the fact that, you know, it was something that hit record sales, music enthusiasts, pop culture, film. This was something that, you know, that was really multi-dimensional in the way audiences were able to learn about it, absorb it and dig into it. Um, a true, you know, global phenomenon. Um, and that just doesn't happen very often. You know, And that certainly doesn't happen very often to a 19-year-old kid who uh, probably spent more time in his bedroom with his guitar than he should have. But boy, some special stuff can happen when the, r- the right talent and the right imagination combine forces. And the creativity and the imagination of this work, I think, was something that from a musical standpoint just hadn't happened much at the time and in a lot of ways kind of hasn't happened since there's been a lot of prog. There's been a lot of intriguing, complicated work that's been studied and assessed over time, but nothing quite like this in its uniqueness. And I think the beauty of it is, you know, it's, it's complex enough to create intrigue, but it's simple enough to study so it was just complicated enough to be really interesting, but simple enough for people to understand. And I think that's why it became mainstream to your point. So probably don't need to ask you, but I will anyway. Does it matter to you? <laughs> Nubs?
1: Well, I really like your take on this simplicity. I think that's an, a really important takeaway from this. And, and that might explain the sheer mainstream success of it is that you know this is not tales from topographic oceans as much as i love that kind of out there prog
0: i knew you were going to caveat that i st- <laughs> i do like tales from topographic yeah, oceans but yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly but i think that i think tubular bells matters especially in 2020 because it is such a reminder of a time when there just were no limits there were no limits commercially creatively you had record labels who supported their artists And therefore, you could have things like Tubular Bells become mainstream successes, huge mainstream successes. And it's a reminder of what happens when things become commercialized over many decades. Because you're right, an album like this and a phenomena like this would would just not happen in today's music scene. We're just not set up for that. But in 1973, it was the perfect time for a record like this to come along and, and kind of transform a lot of aspects of music. So it was, it was very important then. It certainly mattered then. And and I think it matters now. And I think that to your point earlier, if, if listeners just had a little more patience and a little less instant gratification, you know, there's something to be taken from tubular bells, even in 2020. So let's get to the final cut. T for you is tubular bells on the turntable. Is it in the collection? Is it collecting dust or is it in the for sale bin?
0: Well, listen. It's in the collection, and and the reason I say that is because I literally have now purchased tubular bells, and it was not in the collection before, in the vinyl collection that is. But uh, now it is. All I have right. it on. I have it on order. So I've had it, like I said from the onset. I I've had it in my digital catalog, you know, for years. But uh, yeah, a, a recent addition to. Uh, my vinyl collection now i'm not going to go with on the turntable just because you know it's probably the type of thing i'll pop in every so often and revisit but i don't think it's the type of thing that'll be regularly played but after digging into it for this episode and boy what a great inclusion by you and suggestion by you for an episode it's something that i i damn well want to have in my collection and you know i went out and made that happen and purchased it so it's in the collection for me Um, uh how
1: about that eh? i tell you what can you give me the theme real quick let's give me give me the theme song real quick tof has purchased tubular bells may we all congratulate him on this new arrival to his record collection tubular bells is in the
0: collection
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. About that, about that.
0: Well, good that, for you. That wasn't even scary. That that just that just kind of you know made me feel good. <laughs> so the final cut for you, Nubs. What do you got? You know, part one is uh, is on the
1: turntable. I listen to it regularly. It 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 really does not get old to me. And that's one of the beauties of of being into progressive rock is you can listen to the same song for 30 plus years and and it doesn't get old. Part two would be collecting dust. It, it, you know, I rarely would take any albums that we assess and break them up into half because who would do that? But with this album, it's obviously pretty easy to do that. So in the middle of that would be in the collection. So, you know, it'd be it'd be inaccurate to put this whole album on the turntable because I really do spend time with half of it very often, but I, I don't spend a lot of time with the second half. So in the collection, firmly in there, and I do listen to part one very frequently. I don't listen to part two as much. It, it's never captured my interest the same as part one.
0: So just to make clear nubs has side one on the turntable while side two he chose collecting dust 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 dust, dust. very thank nice you. thank you
1: very nice
0: very moving it felt good felt like a good one
1: felt real good you know, what, you know what else is going to feel good? It's finding out what's in your head. Ooh. In your head, in your head. In your head, in your head.
0: There's no the fighting. <laughs> T, what is in your head? Well, you know, I can't think of a more appropriate one uh, to kick off with um, than Millie Vanelli. Well, wow. uh, well, of course. The track is "Girl, I'm gonna miss you." And listen, I love the Milli Vanilli album. I don't care who's singing. You know, Frank Farian, kind of a dick move what he did to those guys, but you know, guy could really produce an album. And uh, I, I, I just I love "Girl." You know, it's true. The whole album, I, it's just like the whole thing. But uh, "Girl, I'm gonna miss you." That is a great early 90s i guess as it was um you know pop slow jam i just think it's wonderful so and who cares who was singing it who it cares doesn't, yeah it doesn't, matter. doesn't in fact, matter in fact when you see the real singers it kind of makes it even more amazing <laughs> yeah, you know? totally yeah um yeah shout out to i guess rob and fab on that one uh the second song is by rat and this was a uh, you know, a, a single for them called Giving Yourself Away. And it was written by the great Desmond Child who, you know, famously wrote, I was made for loving you by Kiss. I hate myself for loving you, Joan Jett. You give love a bad name, living on a prayer in bad medicine, Bon Jovi. Dude looks like a lady. What it takes by Aerosmith. Poison by Alice Cooper. How can we be lovers, Michael Bolton? And lastly live in la vida loca by ricky martin i mean come on this guy knew what he was doing so he wrote this uh track for rat and it it is it's outstanding it's you know probably one of their best songs and uh a regular listen for me uh as i guess i gave some 80s hair metal flavor in round and round i guess i'll give it again and you know what's in my head and then lastly is the live version So you specified a live version on Dishwalla a couple episodes ago. I'm going to specify live Brokenhearted Savior by Big Head Todd and the Monsters. Uh, Really, really great version of this song. Great guitar solo to kind of take you out of it. Nothing complicated about it, but it's uh, just a really good fit as that tempo picks up and really, really good live performance of a great song by Big Head Todd and those monsters nubs. what's in your head
1: in my head right now is uh we did our our show on oasis be here now a few weeks back and i through that process discovered all these demos from oasis that are on youtube that you can listen to and the heathen chemistry demos are on there so i've been really enjoying the version of stop crying your heart out which is the demo where noel sings lead Oh, okay. Oasis, stop crying your heart out. The demo version with Noel on lead vocals. Hmm. Uh, Rush's uh, Countdown off the Signals album. It's a closer on Signals closer, yeah. Mm-hmm. With that great outro mm-hmm. uh, where the three guys are just completely in lockstep. And then one of my favorite songs from I think it's either late '80s, but it might be it might be 1990. But Fly to the Angels by Slaughter. Oh, great boy! We're we're in a hair model mood tonight, aren't I we? I think we are. It might be a summer thing, but definitely. Definitely in a hair metal mood this evening. We sure are, no doubt. Great song, but you know what? What leads into hair metal better than "Tube of the Bells" by Mo- Mike Oldfield? You know,
0: yeah, exactly. They they go hand in hand, really
1: hand in hand. Exactly. I tell you what goes hand in hand is uh, discovering great albums together on the podcast. So I appreciate you uh, taking such a investment in "Tube of the Bells" tonight and giving us your thoughts. And it was fascinating as always to hear your. Your perceptions and observations of this uh pretty
0: pretty legendary and famous album L- listen great suggestion and just like richard branson you know took a gamble on tubular bells uh and in, in making it the first ever record on on his new record label you know you took a gamble in having it be episode eight of uh, of of the old podcast here and and i give you credit it's a uh gutsy, ambitious choice for an episode, but I'm sure glad that you suggested it. It's been a lot of fun to study it and, uh, and get to know it. And Hey, now it's part of the collection. So job well done. And like Richard Branson, the next move is to make
1: $4.1 billion off of this podcast.
0: Exactly. So we're on our way.
1: Subscribe to us, follow us, comment on the episodes and make requests on Apple podcasts on YouTube. And certainly check out, we're tweeting on Twitter. T, give everybody the Twitter handle as you do.
0: Well, uh, first of all, I, I, it'd be great if we could make $4 off this podcast. <laughs> um, but uh, Twitter, it is uh, the number two uh, underscore twins underscore album.
1: Thanks, everybody, so much for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Thanks a so bunch. Peace out. <laughs> to twins. Earth. Earth that's about it. That's all
0: we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.